better to. Sometimes, when I am teaching and sewing, I'd far rather be reading or writing, but I try to deny myself. Charlotte Bronte, Letter to Robert Southey. Trundling through the lanes towards the interview, I stretched and curled my toes with pleasure. Mr Naismith made a cheery companion, pointing out the various landmarks by which I might navigate when walking. I tried hard not to look directly at him, but his leonine head and animated chatter were hard to resist. Feigning nonchalance, I asked occasional questions, although I stammered and mixed my words up. I gave in, let him talk and watched the countryside unfurl. It was a strange place, considering the flat valley floor and marshland I was accustomed to. The outline of a castle could be seen in the distance, as the day was again clear, and everywhere was the susurration of water. It was hard to believe I was here, in this gothic fairy tale setting. My bucolic fellow travellers, Mr Naismith and Jock the Stone Effigy, only served to increase this effect. The characters populating my news story continued to fascinate. Mrs Armstrong, the mistress of Proctor's Eds, was stout and strident in a manner, with a tendency to span an octave on certain words, far more mettlesome than my embittered superiors at Lowood. So, Miss Wilson, you will live, I believe, with the Naismiths at the vicarage in the first instance? The words were said as if they were a conundrum to be solved. This is not altogether convenient, but it will serve if you are punctual. The children should be at breakfast by eight and I would like you to supervise this. A nurse made them. Schoolroom meals, pale food, Bible reading. The lady continued, It is most important to establish the mood of the day early. Of course. Mrs Armstrong's gaze narrowed as if I disagreed or made an unpleasant noise. They should take lessons in the morning and then something stimulating, perhaps. She wafted a hand. In the afternoon. You will eat in the nursery afterwards. Then you are free to go, if you wish. She arranged a vocal crescendo to suggest that this idea was surprising. I could still recall satirical prints from the mantelpiece at my guardian's. Gilray's cartoon ladies, frilled and porcine, came to mind, and I looked away in case she could see my thoughts. I nodded to the rim of my cup and heard, muffled then sharper, a tattoo of feet preceding a bang. The open door spewed the noisemakers into the room. Mama, we've found the nest! A figure, blurred with momentum, skidded to a halt. The effect was straw in the wind. He had corn-coloured hair and was thin and leggy. I hadn't taught a boy before and eyed him warily. My guardian's eldest was the closest I'd come to a boy. Loutish face, loud voice, big hands. But male children were just that, children. And now, I thought, I am in charge. A smaller figure shadowed him, a darker, lissom little girl. Come here, commanded Mrs Armstrong, and show Miss Wilson your face. They may be twins, Miss Wilson, but are unalike in most ways, I would say. She stretched out an arm as she spoke, and the girl sidled towards her, not quite making eye contact. There was an awkward curtsy. Her brother, more confident, sallied forth. This is Margaret, Miss Wilson, but we call her Meg. I'm James Armstrong, the younger. I'll not be with you for long. I'm off to the Royal Grammar. You to make sure I'm ready to...
Mrs Armstrong gave a tut and an irritated flap of the hand. James, enough! My head! To underscore this, she dabbed her brow with a small handkerchief. The effect was so theatrical I felt a bulge of laughter. Looking away from her, I found two pairs of eyes watching me. One pair steady and one crinkling at the ends of a grin. They didn't look away. Perhaps not so dissimilar then. But they were only young, twelve or so. The curiosity might be wholesome rather than spiteful. Tomorrow then, concluded Mrs Armstrong before anything had the chance to begin. With that, she rang the bell. A maid was summoned to show me out, moving toward the front door, then changing her mind and direction to a vestibule at the side of the house. The children followed behind. Giggling started as they joined forces with an old dog who huffed along with them. The Pied Piper of Hamelin, or the Raggle Taggle Gypsies. A festive cavalcade, the whole thing started to feel quite cheery. The garden to the side was less formal and sported some late roses. An espaliered pear, rotten fruit dripping, formed an archway to the gate. There was a bonfire somewhere, its smoky richness just hanging in the damp air. They tussled with the dog at the gate. The chickens! Yes, he's a naughty boy with them. The unfortunate creature was seized like a fighting bear and submitted to this sedately. If he was naughty, he was also the master of disguise. I was waved away through the gate. Looking behind, their faces were cross-hatched by iron curlicues and the low sunshine. It was good to be out and walking. Proctor's Dead's was a small estate stitched to some tenanted farms. As the path rose up along the coast, the valley's neat quilting lay behind, and I stopped to look back, take stock of the meeting. At that moment, I wanted nothing more than to be part of a pattern. I was so desperate to belong. This first position seemed ripe with possibilities if I could navigate the redoubtable lady of the house. Parents. They were unfamiliar too, where I'd come from. So, Marianne, tell me your first impressions of the good Mrs Armstrong. At supper, Mr Naismith loaded his plate. His hands were square like shovels and made the knife and fork look like elvish bodkins. He used the childhood name I'd hoped to leave behind. No one corrected it. On either side of him, our faces turned upwards, pale as cowrie shells. The candles had been lit as the sun faded. Jonathan, really, you gossip like Evie and Mrs Elliot. But still, he said, incorrigible and with a wink, she's formidable, is she not? I hadn't, not that I could remember, had anyone invite me into this sort of lively confederacy before. Wink back? Perhaps not. The children seem pleasant, spirited. Ah, yes, but, this quietly, not hers. Jonathan, please, his first wife's, a young thing, lovely, and died when the twins were born. Mrs Armstrong, then the also recently widowed Mrs Nella, was there to commiserate. Organise, his mouth twisted into a grin. Relieve Armstrong's suffering a little. To provide the children with a mother, counted Maria, her clear voice cutting through the intimacy. 
She nodded across the table, as if to underscore this. Well, yes, and with no children of her own likely. He was off again. In reply, Maria rang the bell for Evie, although Mr Naismith didn't seem to have finished eating. And with a <coughs> delicate disposition at times, it's a fine idea for Mary Ann here to take the reins. Give those children a bit of young blood. Mary! He raised his glass. We salute you, bound as you are where angels fear to tread. He waggled his eyebrows with a flourish and set to clear in his plate as Evie hovered. I took a measured sip, discouraging ribaldry. I was alarmed but also quite exhilarated by the indiscretion. Maria smoothed the napkin on her lap. Cutlery chinked. And... Mr Armstrong, I assume I'll have little to do with him where the children are concerned. Having no idea how to balance the conversation between husband and wife, I launched this into the middle ground. Mr Naismith considered. A good man. Made his money largely from the estate. Tenants, and I hear, has valuable investments and a couple of mines. Plantations, perhaps, as well. Is that what a good man was? Glancing at Maria again... I was relieved to catch her eye. Those carved eyebrows raised a fraction. Is he away from home a great deal? I pushed on, emboldened, but unsure of how rude this might sound, monopolising attention. The warmth of embarrassment prickled. Not that I know. Mr Naismith seemed comfortable talking to the room in general. They're regular at church, hold social evenings at Harvest Festival and Christmas. He's always there. Keeps himself to himself, though. Keen on his library? He's an egg collector. Go out sometimes, nesting. I'll show you my hoard sometime, Marianne. Have some rare beauties. His face glowed. A morsel of food stuck to the corner of his mouth, which was hard not to look at. There have been some lectures by the excellent Reverend Turner in Newcastle on animal, vegetable, mineral, all manner of things. And soon, he banged a remaining spoon on the table, the elements of chemistry. You must come to Newcastle and come birdwatching with me when you've seen the egg collection. The spoon was given another drumming and its drummer beamed. Jonathan, too much. Nan can't be expected to rhapsodise in the same way over your hoard. A few drawers of dusty eggshells. Not that at all. Dead things. Husks. Thinking back, I remember his face with its palimpsest of irritation, and her voice, low and indistinct. We must have made a strange group up in the dining room, the reverend with his acolytes, and servants miss nothing. She's not eaten much, the missus. Evie clattered down the plates and looked at the meat and congealed juices. Her mouth worked as if she could taste them. Hey, never you mind, Nebby. Take out the tart and if you finish up quickly, I'll save you a bit of dinner. Go on! said Mrs Elliot, shoving the girl's shoulder. It was like trying to move a mound of sand. Same amount of brain, too. The new lass's bonny mind. Evie stood, sucking her finger and making little popping noises as it moved in and out of her generous mouth. Move! Else I'll put your dinner out and you can, come, you can go home hungry the night. Water splashed as Mrs Elliot attacked the dishes. I bet she's clever. Her and him... The reverend, though having a writing at her. Evie took the tart and the plate of apples on the big tray and Mrs Elliot's eyes bulged as she heard the plates slip and crack. She stood still 
until the door closed, resting a hand in the warm grease. The returned plate of food sat at the side. Three of them up there. Whose daft idea was that? She tuttered and got on. Autumn 2 The Todd's cottage smells of wood smoke and dough rising, but the damp room at the back smells of death. I recognise this. Old William Todd's breath comes in whistles and gasps with a deeper raggedness behind, a corrosive bass note. I describe the morning to him, tell him that the hawthorn is heavily buried, a bad winter coming, he rasps that the sky is clear and it's mild. He nods and pats his blankets absently. That I heard a screech owl and its partner last night. He's indifferent to me reading. The day out of the window is a story unfolding with its beginning and middle, then ending in darkness and, for the lucky, sleep. Although for him, the ending will soon be different. Both of us expect the shy tap on the door. There is a wobbling saucer of tea carried with ferocious concentration, the tip of a tongue protruding from a small mouth, a sense of veneration. Eliza is a diminutive handmaiden and her grandfather an unlikely sultan. The dish is placed in his gnarled hands and then they can smile at one another. There is a wheezy chuckle as she pats his cheek. Then it is my turn. I am brought my tea with the sense not of a gift being bestowed, but of a payment being made. There you are, the little face seems to say, a just reward for you, storyteller. So I, in turn, gentle her face and straighten her cap. My fingers are sensitive to those familiar textures and work from memory. Small, neat heads and stray curls to stroke and smooth. At the Todd's, we are waiting for death to come, but we're making no attempt to bar the way. A low wood, there was no waiting. Death snatched, greedy and violent, as we did all we could to prevent an arbitrary attack. When Helen Burns succumbed, I felt I was mourning a daughter. And that was because no one else was. Where was her father? Repeated letters and pleas, but he was a magistrate. Too busy, too far to travel, too inconvenient a man on his second marriage. Her bed stood empty in my room. When the sickness abated and night vigils became less regular and urgent, there was time for thinking and feeling when they had only been doing. I took up my books and set them down again. I gave my attention back to the depleted schoolroom and to girls like you, Nan. But not all of it. I heard all the while that calm voice with its lilting accent and I could not be grateful that she'd gone to a better place. I wanted her for myself. It was Mr Brocklehurst that silenced that voice for a while. Like most benefactors, he was at pains to show his generosity rather than be generous. There was also much to salvage from his disgrace at the Commission's findings after the ep epidemic. 
There I was, brought out on display at Christmas soirees and musical evenings. I smiled and felt I could ignite with rage at the smallest spark. Step back, gaudy ladies, with your feathers and taffeta. And it was at such an evening that I met Jonathan Naismith. A clergyman may also be an uncomfortable reminder of a different world. He talked to me kindly, refilled my glass, drew me from the cold window seat and asked me about my teaching, the books I'd read. He laughed without inhibition or apology, throwing his great blonde head back. He was travelling north to take up a parish, no family ties, both parents deceased, and excitement burned from him. Show me a school. It's important to you. A tenor voice, I think. Some inflection or burr. Not northern, but something of the regions. Here, let me help you. The ground's rough here. Isn't it cold? Such inconsequential chatter. Clear eyes, grey-blue and tawny skin. In the garden and on the road. That's why my hands are this colour. He laid them next to mine to see the contrast. It's good to get out, I think. What fogs you have here. I think you must find it suffocating sometimes. Yes, I say. Yes. And so he came to visit, his sober clothing deflecting all but the most curious. Just another man in black. He wrote to me from the north, amusing vignettes about his new parishioners, gossipy little anecdotes, which took me outside of myself for a while. It was a strange courtship. Written correspondence was regular, his visits were seldom. On one of these rare, and I thought to myself, precious occasions, he delivered the morning service to you all at Lowton and confessed he was appalled at the cold, at your blue pinched faces in front of him, the endless day and the long trudge back to school. If ever I loved him, it was then. Someone who could be kind and someone who could laugh. That was all it took. When he offered marriage, I seized that gift greedily because I was hungry, empty. But he is devouring me. Knowing that I was to come north, I packed the small box of Helen's meagre belongings I've stored all these years. Books she'd borrowed, her tuckers, a tiny ragged doll, pressed rosemary from home. They are frail and faded, these things, and Helen is a quiet, gentle ghost. A curl of her hair lies in my locket. Her grave goes unmarked, like a pauper or a suicide. And she'd said, eternity is a rest, not a terror or an abyss. But she's not there yet. She's only somewhere in between. It's for her father to claim her, give her rest with some dignity. I've written to him. A mission for myself, a purpose. I say, dear Mr Burns, I say, the memory of your loss, the pain of letting her go, such a special girl. I say, a headstone, perhaps a verse. Then I cross out these things, burn the paper in the fire and think, a letter can be all too easily ignored. Helen says, quite distinctly, I often dreamed of Northumberland, the brook at Deepden. There is business left 
undone.